I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. We're winding down for the year at Chatham House. I think it would be fair to say it's a lot quieter today in the media studio. Very few of us left in in the last week before Christmas. And actually, the podcast team is is rapidly dispersing to all corners of the world. (laughs) So it's just me again this week. But we do have a parting gift from my beloved co-host, Mariana, whose last act at Chatham House in 2021 was to record an interview with Rob Yates, the director of our Global Health Programme, about an article he's just written for the World Today magazine, which looks at COVID-19 2.0, where we are with the pandemic, the emergent variants that are affecting the world now, the problems, the continuing problems with vaccine distribution, the issues around vaccine nationalism and the inequities of the global health system as it's currently kind of constituted and basically looking ahead to what we can expect from the pandemic in 2022. Obviously, you might ask, why have we chosen such a potentially gloomy topic to finish (laughs) our series, to finish season four? Well, we kind of thought we began early this year, if you go back a few episodes, with another contribution from Rob, which looked at the problem of vaccine nationalism in more depth and which predicted that if the problem of richer countries hoarding vaccines and not effectively distributing them to other countries in the world was not solved, then we could be in a particularly sticky situation. That was at the start of 2021. We wanted to have a kind of stock take basically. So apologies if it is a bit gloomy, but I think it kind of ties the season together quite nicely. And and Rob, as ever, is a fantastic guest to speak to. So that's the interview you're going to hear first on this episode. Then I'm joined by Leonard Schutter, who is a contributor to the International Affairs Journal, the Chatham House Journal, in the November issue, where he writes about NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, and specifically goes back and reconstructs its kind of recent history, looking at how NATO was challenged by the presidency of Donald Trump, and specifically how Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg responded to the challenges that that Donald Trump was posing, particularly around sort of funding and around the idea that some of the other members of NATO weren't necessarily pulling their weight and basically managed to maintain some kind of order and some kind of stability in the alliance while faced with all this disruption. So we start off in that conversation with this kind of historical case study, and then we move to think about the challenges that NATO's facing currently, and in particular, how they've responded to the Biden administration, and thinking through what lessons we can really learn about how international organisations can respond to domestic politics in one of the world's superpowers. So in a nutshell, that's what we're bringing you for your final episode. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you have some time over Christmas to listen to this. And we'll be back in the outro for a bit more ramble. Hope you enjoy the interviews. So now I'm joined by Rob Yates. Hi, Rob. Thank Hi, you so morning. much for being here today. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. 
So I thought we could start with the World Today magazine. You wrote one of the stories in our cover package. And you looked pretty much at this connection between COVID and solidarity, mm -hmm. or rather like a solidarity failure around COVID. And I thought we could kickstart with a couple of questions from the article. Sure. So you're a longtime advocate of universal health coverage, and you're taking the ongoing pandemic as a prime example of how the model could have helped governments around the world deal with COVID and protect their populations. So I wondered if you could, for our listeners, outline the benefits of health coverage at a more societal level. Mm -hmm. And if you could let us know, why do you feel like it requires what you describe in the article, a system of solidarity for its implementation? Sure, yeah, yeah. And I think that COVID-19 really has proved the case of why the world needs universal health coverage. It was just before it started, in fact, in September 2019, that all the world's leaders at the United Nations signed up to universal health coverage, everyone getting the health services they need with financial protection and when we're talking about health services we're talking about all health services so, so the public health services that detect viruses and and you know protect people uh, from pandemics right through to health promotion prevention curative services obviously if you fall sick with the virus and and sadly of course some, some people have been a lot of people have been succumbing to it and the need for palliative care for end of life care so this virus with it threatening literally everyone on the planet because no one had a Unity to this thing really does show why we needed this universal approach that everyone was going to be protected with all these health services. But most importantly as well, recognising that for a lot of people, particularly for expensive ICU care, it's very expensive. And, you know, that you need a publicly financed health system to guarantee that those services are literally available to everyone with healthy, wealthy people subsidising the sick and the poor. So um, I think, you know, this, this has really sort of shown big time why we need universal health coverage. And, and, you know, the second aspect, you know, is, is the point you make around solidarity. Uh, I've already alluded to this, that, you know, you do need a system whereby healthy, wealthy people support the sick and the poor. And that goes within countries and between countries, you know, that, that you know, we have seen a number of countries that are racing ahead particularly with sort of vaccine coverage. And, and I think this is where there has been the, this most alarming failure of solidarity that countries in the West are, are immunising um, 80% plus of the populations and a good number of people here in the UK, 20 million in fact, have had booster vaccines, whereas the number of people protected in, in low-income countries is about 5%. Mm -hmm. And that's just, you know, absolutely pathetic, really, and, and display of lack of solidarity. And we're paying the price for this now as, as we're sort of seeing with new variants coming along and, and uh, we, we need to get serious on having more solidarity and living to, up to those principles of universal health coverage. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm quite happy that you mentioned this well, high-income country versus low-income mm. country sort of discrepancy because there's a sentence uh, in your article that I was mentioning earlier where you say, although the behavior of richer nations may be damning, the outcome need not be. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I wondered if you could illustrate with some examples the kinds of positive results you see emerging uh, from the ongoing crisis of solidarity. The positive results in solidarity, I think, have, have been really shown by the scientific community. I think the, the, the sharing of data and information and genomic sequencing, the collaboration of public and private sector in some aspects in producing the, the medicines and, and, and the vaccines, 
And I think it was just astonishing that that it was almost the anniversary, isn't it? That you mm-hmm. know the first vaccine was um, given here in, in in the UK, but that with less than a year we came up with so many vaccines that mm-hmm. work really well. And that was a that was a great example of positive solidarity. In the research that we did looking at solidarity, we did see, I think, some encouraging signs of some regional solidarity. I, I think that the African Union, African CDC, has really stepped up very well. And, and I think there has been a good degree of solidarity amongst African countries, often really pointing out the failures of the rest of the world to support them, really. I mean, I, I think that it's been admirable how uh, African leaders have really sort of challenged our leaders on, on these aspects. So I would say those are the sort of the main positives of of, of solidarity. Mm. Plus, of course, don't forget the the phenomenal solidarity shown by health workers across the world Mm. in in supporting people through these processes. And, you know, that we've seen in the UK, you know, this great love of the National Health Service, you know, all those when I think the nation was most fearful at the beginning Mm. of this, people clapping every Thursday and and, uh, signs all over the country, you know, supporting NHS heroes I think that that's been wonderful you know and and it really has proved yet again how popular a universal health system uh, is and, and and can be but if anything I think you know that that those were the sort of solidarity lessons of of last year and mm-hmm. this year it hasn't gone well at all because just as all these tools became available for the world to tackle this crisis and you might say the baton was passed from the scientists to the vaccine manufacturers and our governments, uh, we've seen, you know, abject failure of solidarity. Mm-hmm. And that has been the story of 2021, that we have had this vaccine apartheid, we, you know, where, whereby we've been vaccinating ourselves and having, you know, third third shots and, and great swathes of the, the population, the world's population haven't, haven't had any at all. And I think organizations that were meant to sort of were sort of set up to sort of deal with crises like these in in, in a multilateral way one thinks like the G7 and the G20 have have failed miserably this year and this has been pointed out by by so many people and we really do need you know multilateral solidarity to step up next year otherwise you know you just can't see this pandemic ending Absolutely. And I think we'll get into the the question of multilateralism a little bit later mm-hmm. on. So hold on to that. Yeah, thought. sure. Uh, just before that, uh, I, I really wanted to ask about when you're talking about this failure of, of solidarity or crisis of solidarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did notice that earlier this month, correct me if I don't get the terminology mm-hmm. right, but earlier this month, the World Health Assembly convened its second ever special session. Uh-huh. And it seems that they're taking steps towards creating some sort of a body to then move on to an international convention or treaty on pandemic prevention, preparedness and response. Mm -hmm. So what do you make? How do you fare this move towards legally binding instruments? Uh, And are you optimistic that such a treaty would be successful in tackling this crisis of solidarity? Ah, yes. Well... (laughs) Optimistic. That's a good question. And, you know, I think we have seen in the past, you know, there has been this solidarity, particularly around tackling issues like tobacco. So the Convention on on, on Tobacco, I think, was a very successful framework mm-hmm. convention to to control uh, tobacco. So 
that has been shown before. I, I think one of the the problems is is that that whilst people are discussing treaties and, and perhaps sort of looking to the the next crisis, you know, so the focus is very much on how do we stop this happening again. There is perhaps you know less focus on the here and now to say this pandemic is still raging. Mm. You know that you have people like um, Sir Jeremy Farrar saying recently, you know, we're nearer the beginning of this pandemic than we are the end of it. So sometimes I think you know there is this perhaps sort of switch to the global long-term instruments, you know, as opposed to dealing with the here and now and and you know the the, the failures about to you know, vaccinating the world, and it sometimes feels like sort of discussing fire prevention in a in a burning building, <laughs> you know, that we need to sort of put this fire out first, and I and I do think that the the lack of solidarity be, being shown in tackling the current pandemic really is sort of, I think, affecting the degree to which people trust each other going mm. into these discussions. Because you, you, you very much can imagine that, that, that a good number of developing countries are sort of saying to Western powers, you know, how, how can we take this process seriously, particularly around things like, you know, you protecting patents for for vaccines that are not enabling us to make these things ourselves why should we really take you seriously and engage in these discussions plus of course you know we recognize these things are going to take quite a long time you know the special session really did sort of just agree that this was a process that was going to take place and and set up you know working groups but this isn't really due to report I, i don't think finally until the world health assembly not of next year but the year after so i think it's good that these things are happening and and you know it, it's to be hoped that it will result in, in in better preparedness one big part of that i think must be a much better funded world health organization with more power and that's a hot issue you know but i think again it's been sort of shown you know why we need a really really strong world health organization so if this process results in that, then that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that does mean countries like ours stepping up with more financing. And I think countries being prepared really to acknowledge more power for WHO to investigate outbreaks in, in, in the future. But that's going to be quite a challenge for, for you know, the Western powers and, and other big powers to, mm-hmm. to accept that. Some some reserved optimism, I, I sense. Yes, yes, and and I think you know it's we have to be optimistic. But what it needs is political leadership. What mm-hmm. it really needs is political leadership, and I think the lessons of twenty twenty one have been this vacuum of political leadership. You know that we we started the year with a president of the United States who was trying to undermine WHO to defund it which is quite astonishing when, when you think about it. But then sadly, you know, the, the other G7 leaders didn't step up either. You know, the UK chaired the G7 in Cornwall and there were some pretty clear asks from the international panel uh, chaired by uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf and, and uh, Helen Clark around redistributing vaccines massive increase in public financing for multilateral instruments and facilitating tech transfers. And the G7 did practically nothing. I mean, it was sort of tokenary uh, reallocation of of vaccines. And even that commitment hasn't been met. Only about 15, 20 percent of those vaccines have been uh, redistributed. So, you know, it hasn't been a good year. and, And there has been this vacuum of political leadership. Who knows what's going to happen next year? Maybe President Biden will 
step up. You know, he he did have a he hosted a, a, a summit just before the UN General Assembly. He's indicated that the US will support a patent waiver now. That's sort of huge progress from the previous president. Maybe President Biden will will step in. And you just mentioned uh, the patent waivers, mm-hmm. uh, and I was listening into the event that Chatham House hosted. I believe you were you were the chair, mm-hmm. and I, I remember one of the questions was about how it was it Germany, the UK, and Canada who had blocked the the patent, the trips waiver, and someone mentioned that this was pretty much like prioritizing free market economics mm-hmm. at the expense of depriving people or millions of people of life saving vaccines, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so. I wanted to help. I've already asked if you're optimistic, but also if if you're hopeful that we can improve the current system, which you described as fragmented and profit-driven. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And and I think uh, this is an ongoing issue that's obviously been d- debated in the World Trade Organization, but opinions are shifting. That so we have seen the United States mm-hmm. now supporting a patent waiver, and Japan says they they won't block that either. France is supportive. The European Union is still opposing, and and mm-hmm. it has been Germany that's been been leading that. But mm. Germany just has a new chancellor in in place, so maybe you know, sort of, Mr. Schultz will will uh, be the leader who will change Germany's position. UK, unfortunately, is still still blocking as a big big blocker. Uh, Switzerland is too, but you can see that the numbers are diminishing, and and let's hope that that you know that these these countries do recognise that you know this is a public health emergency. And we really do need to step up to make sure that that vaccine manufacturing is accelerated around the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it sounds very similar to the points that you were making when you were on the podcast earlier this year. I believe in February, uh, you spoke to my colleague Amrit and you warned our listeners about vaccine uh, nationalism. Mm. Uh, at a time, actually, when there was this sense of hope and promise around COVAX, mm, uh, mm. COVAX being the international effort mm. to bring about uh, equitable access to the COVID-19 vaccines. Since then, arguably, and you might disagree in a second, the initiative has uh, fallen short of its of its goals. Do you agree with this assessment? And what lessons, both positive and negative, do you think could be learned from this initiative? I think COVAX was a great idea and remains a great idea. The problem is it's been undermined by wealthy <laughs> countries running off with all the vaccines. I mean, mm. it's, it really is as straightforward as that, mm. that, that countries like ours said that we would support it and, and you know, that, that we made financial contributions towards it. But it was sort of those were quite slow in coming. And it really was the case that, that when COVAX had sufficient resources to be able to start negotiating contracts, the the West had made off with all the vaccines, you know. So, so COVAX, you know, hasn't been short of. Well, it could do with more resources. Don't don't, don't get me wrong. <laughs> that hasn't been the issue. It has been the the contracts, you know, stitched up by our countries, which are very opaque. The the quantities of vaccines purchased, the prices paid for them, and so. COVAX has been doing its best to to purchase uh, vaccines and also manage the very, very fragmented and lumpy redistributions coming from from countries. This is an ongoing issue now that that sort of COVAX are accepting more donations from uh, Western countries, but they're often coming very late 
And, you know, this is making it extremely difficult for, for developing countries to distribute them within their own countries because literally they're being told on some occasions the, the day before that a consignment is arriving at the airport, which is just hopeless, really, when, when you think about it. That's not COFAX's fault. That's mm-hmm. our government's fault. And, and I think it's, it's very important that people realise that, you know, because there is a lot of sort of blaming going on. And I, I think that there has been throughout the pandemic fingers pointed at the multilateral system as, as, you know, having failures from governments that have failed spectacularly. You know, one thinks, you know, the most uh, obvious example of that is the the Trump administration, you know, which chose to to really put all the blame on WHO. And you had a president on national television telling people to inject themselves with bleach. I mean, you know, it's... It's that ridiculous, uh, you know, the, the this blaming going on. And uh, I think in so many cases, you know, the, the failures or the, the, the shortcomings of, of multilateral systems have been quite simply due to them being undermined by uh, national governments. I think you've basically preempted my next oh, question, <laughs> which is great. Uh, it's just I have this very big first order question, which mm. I don't think if you have the straightforward answer to it, you would be solving the problem right uh, now, most likely. Mm. Uh, but I would still really like to hear your thoughts on it. So it might be that you just expand a little bit more mm. on what you were saying. But the question that keeps coming to me when it comes to failures or sort of assigning the blame, I just keep thinking, has multilateralism failed? Or is is it failing to stop countries, high income countries from stockpiling or is there anything else that he could have done? Or was it doomed from the start? What are your like m- main first thoughts on this? I think that objectively, it has been very disappointing, to put it mildly, or, or a disaster, that this massive crisis came when we had such a generation of political leaders heading mm. up big countries and 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 that that when one thinks that the last big crisis the financial crisis of 2008-9 and the degree of solidarity shown uh, by powers to to sort out the banking system and the leadership shown by our prime minister gordon brown at the time the which is internationally you know sort of recognized and of uh, president obama in the united states and the G7 and then, you know, the form, the G20, really, really acting with solidarity and, and sorting that, that that problem out. This time round, you know, the, I think, you know, if one looks around the world, you know, the, 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 the political climate has been very different. And, you know, there has been this retreat into nationalism to immediately to point fingers at other governments and multilateral systems. And there just has been this political vacuum. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that has been very unfortunate. Now, you might say one sort of silver lining is that some of these leaders now are being voted out of power by their electorates who have recognised the failings Mm -hmm. of their leaders. Trump has gone. I think it's highly likely that President Bolsonaro is going to to, to go as well. And, you know, I I think the British electorates are looking at the performance of Boris Johnson through this crisis. And, and, you know, that we await the public inquiry, particularly to see the response early in the pandemic, you know, where we had a prime minister who was celebrating going around hospitals, shaking people's hands, which was clearly the wrong advice. So let's see. And and, and maybe uh, that looking forward, we are going to be seeing perhaps leaders learning from these lessons and, and being more responsible and more collaborative in, in, in the future. But I, I do think that the world 
has just been very unlucky that this hit when we had such a generation of, dare I say it, incompetent leaders. You may you may say so, I suppose. And uh, lastly, uh, on the episode that I was referring to back in the beginning of the year, you argued that the priority for 2021 must be to vaccinate the world equitably. So these are your words. Uh, and as we're recording this sort of the end of the year, how do you fare this? I think it's pretty clear how you'd fare this objective or priority, but also what would be the priority for the year ahead? Same again. You know, the, the, we should do in 2022 what we should have done in 2021. <laughs> Omicron has just shown that up big time, you know, and there is talk about there being a United Nations special assembly, I think, in, in the new year at a head of state level. And we we just have to nail this now, you know, the, the, to, to be much more serious about, about vaccinating the world. Of course, you know, there are worries that, you know, sort of vaccine hesitancy and, and people's just getting so exasperated uh, about the situation might mean that public confidence is, is, is waning and, and that, that, you know, which, which will be very, very dangerous. So I, I think, you know, that we just can't allow this to carry on like this because... Obviously, the real fear is, is is that, you know, we in the West are, are going to be heading for boosters after boosters, you know, every six months or so. But then the rest of the world being a sort of laboratory where, where sort of new new variants come along. And, and there is always that danger that one variant comes along and we're back to square one, something really bad mm -hmm. that, you know, our existing vaccines don't protect us. And then we are literally back to square one. So we've got to get serious. And it's not just, of course, you know, the vaccines, because it is possible that we'll get to a situation. And it may be this is where Omicron uh, goes, that, that it isn't as deadly, but a number of people fall sick. And then the way to stop them falling really sick and ending up in hospital is through treatments. And, and then you're having a combination of vaccines and treatments and that keeping the hospital numbers down and, you know, that that being a, a strategy to, to deal with it. But yet again, those treatments need to be available mm -hmm. for everyone. So then again, those issues around patents and intellectual property sort of come up again. Mm -hmm. But as I keep saying, you know, the scientists are coming, keep coming up with these tools that enable us to, to sort this out once and for all. And sadly, uh, today, the politicians keep failing to ensure that that happens. So let's hope that 2022 is the year that our political leaders, you know, show some genuine leadership and sort this out. Rob, thank you so much. I hope to see you next year to confirm whether this well, was the case. Yes, <laughs> let's hope so. Well, yes, it's um, feel perhaps 50-50 is perhaps <laughs> you know, the, the best we're going to do. But who knows? Let, let's see what happens. Thank you so much for being with us today, Rob. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Okay, so we're back, and now I'm joined in the Chatham House Media Studio by Leonard Schutter. Leonard is a PhD candidate at the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands, and he's also a visiting researcher at Exeter College, University of Oxford. Leonard, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Ben. Uh, so we're here today to discuss your recent article for International Affairs, the Chatham House Journal, which is titled Why NATO Survived Trump, the Neglected Role of Secretary General Stoltenberg. It's available now. You can read it uh, open access, actually, so anyone can download this. It's available on the International Affairs website in our November 2021 issue. So 
within that article, you were really trying to explore the internal sort of politics of, of NATO over the last few years, particularly in response to the presidency of Donald Trump. Could you maybe, first of all, tell us what you were particularly trying to answer in this article and, and how you approached the whole process? Yes, yeah, so... I started from the rather fundamental question, why did NATO survive the Trump presidency? I think listeners will remember how critical Donald Trump was both during the election campaign and then in the first months and the year in office. Mm. He famously called NATO obsolete. He threatened other allies who wouldn't meet the defense spending pledge. He toyed with the idea of withdrawing in public. And actually what Mm. I found in my research is that he was on the verge of announcing a public withdrawal at the summit of 2018. And so it was an interesting question in general, but also, you know, Donald Trump did withdraw the US from other organizations and other multilateral institutions. He withdrew the US from the Paris Climate Agreement. He Mm. withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. He withdrew from UNESCO and de facto from the WTO. And so, you know, the the specter of withdrawal was tangible. Yeah, so, and I started my research by just conducting interviews with as many officials uh, as I could get. So Mm. those were officials in Brussels who worked for NATO, officials in Brussels who worked for the national delegations of of key allies, and officials who were close to Trump in D.C. And over those interviews, a picture emerged that I had not anticipated, Mm. namely that uh, the Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, a former Norwegian Prime Minister, played a much bigger, much more influential role than both academics and most policy observers would usually attribute to NATO secretary generals. NATO secretary generals are famously called more secretaries than generals. (laughs) And I think uh, in this particular historical episode, that really doesn't do justice to to the important role that Stoltenberg played in in keeping the alliance together and and protecting it from, from the presidency of Donald Trump. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll come back to the role that uh, Jens Stoltenberg played in more detail later. But before we do that, can you just outline for us kind of what was underpinning the grievances that Trump was articulating? And was there something sort of particularly Trumpian about these Mm. reservations that the United States had over that period? Or or was he more a kind of continuation in a more extreme way? (laughs) I suppose there were two major issues he had with NATO. The first is an old American concern about unequal burden sharing. So that Mm. is that European allies, in particular on the continent, do not spend sufficiently on defence. And and that can be measured in quantitative terms. There's the famous NATO 2% goal and hardly any of the European allies meet that 2% goal or even have any plans to meet that 2% goal in the future. And so in, in that sense, It wasn't new, but Donald Trump pursued it with much more vigor. And he went as far as to really condition his or the US support in an event of an attack Mm. on whether the specific ally had paid sufficiently. And so that, of course, completely upended the logic on on, on which NATO is based, namely that it is unconditional collective defense alliance. And I suppose the second other major demands that Trump made on NATO was to to soften its Russia policy. Now, that wasn't quite as explicit as a defense spending issue. But listeners will remember that uh, the the Russia issue loomed large over over Trump already during the campaigns. He had a very ambivalent relationship towards uh, Vladimir Putin. And he made all sorts of comments that suggested that he really wasn't fond of the rather 
assertive, confrontative stance that NATO had taken, especially since 2014 when, mm. when Russia invaded uh, eastern Ukraine and annexed Crimea. And so I suppose there, were, there was one demand that was just a more intense form of what previous presidents, including Barack Obama, for example, uh, and Defense Secretary Robert Gates famously had voiced, and one demand that was relatively new. Yeah, okay. So can you tell us the stakes in this game? Like, Maybe it seems really obvious, and it would be a very a very significant thing, of course, for, for the United States to have withdrawn from NATO. But can you just articulate why that would have been such a seismic moment, and what effect would that have had on the alliance, bearing in mind that, you know, the United States, in theory, is one of many countries that are part of this organisation? Yes, you're right. On paper, it's, it's one of 30, if I'm not mistaken. But... I don't think you will find many other organizations in the world that are as dependent on one single member state. Mm. Without the United States, NATO cannot undertake any significant actions. And we saw that in Libya in 2011, when the intervention was you know, crafted and initially implemented by, by France and the UK, and they very quickly uh, ran out of ammunition, uh, they lacked intel, they needed the United States. And uh, that is a pattern that would be observable elsewhere. So without the United States, there is no NATO. And the officials that I spoke to, they were very clear about it. You know, a, a US withdrawal would mean the end of NATO in its current form. And why mm. one can't really anticipate what it would look like without the United States. The United States really is the indispensable member. Yeah, and then the fallout, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. So how did NATO then in the first instance kind of respond to this threat, I suppose? Yeah, it's difficult because it was, it was a complex challenge. Let's let's start perhaps with with burden sharing. Yeah. Um, so the the officials that I spoke to in Brussels, they knew that of course that would be a U.S. demand made, regardless of who would be in the White House. And to an extent, they shared that concern. They mm. shared the concern that Europeans weren't spending enough, not as an end in itself, but you, because European militaries were just not uh, sufficiently ready and adequately equipped. At the same time, budgetary processes are complex domestic politics about defense spending, especially in some continental uh, states such as Germany, for example, are very, very complicated. Mm. And and so the senior officials around Jens Stoltenberg knew that just because Trump exerted pressure, allies wouldn't just immediately, drastically in some instances, increase their defense spending. So what they had to do was really to to tread a fine line between, on the one hand, publicly siding with Trump, lobbying the mm. other allies, and yet subsequently then selling what were perhaps unsatisfactory improvements measured against the demands that Trump made back to Trump as, in fact, quite significant improvements. And and so it was this balancing act that they had to engage in. Mm -hmm. And the way that Stoltenberg in particular did it was through public communications. He used perhaps the most blatant forms of flattery that you would have seen in, in, in public <laughs> diplomacy over the past decades or so. It's I, I encourage listeners to go back to some of the press conferences and statements. It's it's almost cringeworthy. But he clearly <laughs> understood how Trump worked and, yeah. and he, he really played to his ego. So, you know, he kept thanking the president for his leadership on defense spending and really making a difference. He gave him all sorts of credit, uh, even for defence spending that predated Trump's presidency. You know, the first increases in European defence spending mm. Were, mm. were observable in 2015, long before <laughs> Trump entered the White House. And yet, it was Trump who received the credit for it. And that really worked with Trump. That really worked. You know, he really appreciated that flattery. Uh, he appreciated what he said, that he was given the the credit for it, which supposedly the media never gave him credit for in his own words. Mm. Um, and so, you know, Stoltenberg pressed the right buttons. But that was in public. And then 
in private. What Stoltenberg obviously had to do was he had to keep the other allies on site. Mm. Many of them felt quite uneasy about Stoltenberg so publicly siding with Trump and in some cases very explicitly criticizing some allies. So he he had to keep them on board. And the way he did that was through very intense consultations with them and and really showing them the end game and the end game was that this is an existential crisis we need to do things differently mm-hmm. in order to keep the united states in and and differently for example meant going on fox news you know there was this famous instance in early 2019 when jens stoltenberg after all a secretary general of an international organization goes on one of the most partisan channels mm. in the United States and defends Donald Trump and again lavishly praises him uh, and gives him credit for getting another 100 million another 100 billion sorry dollars out of european defense budgets and and these kind of things really work with trump so how much you know you've you've spent a long time now presumably with people asking about jens stoltenberg and, and watching him in press conferences and things and obviously, you mentioned already he's the former Prime Minister of Norway, has an extensive kind of diplomatic experience, political experience. From what you saw in, in your research, how much of this episode is down to Jens Stoltenberg, the personality? Mm. And how much of it is down to, you know, the powers that are vested in the office of Secretary General? I mean, like if we're trying to take lessons from this episode, how much can we sort of extrapolate out for future Secretary Generals once Stoltenberg is gone? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. In general, the office of the Secretary General of NATO is perhaps stronger than is usually assumed. It's, of course, not comparable to the role of uh, some of the leadership positions within the EU. You know, there are no decision-making powers invested in a NATO Secretary General. And, of course, he or she, although in the past it's always been he, Mm. has to keep the US on board. And yet... The Secretary General has very important agenda setting powers. He runs meetings, which sounds very bureaucratic, but I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point uh, in this podcast, came in very handy at a very critical summit in, mm. in Brussels in, in the summer of 2018. And and so the institution of the Secretary General is, is perhaps more powerful than anticipated. But in this particular episode, it really was Jens Stoltenberg who used these powers to the best possible effect. And you rightly said he was, uh, he's a former um, Norwegian prime minister and actually former Norwegian foreign minister as well. He comes from a family of diplomats. So he has a very, very Mm. strong diplomatic background. But also as a character, he wouldn't take himself too seriously. You know, he was not scared to play to the ego in what I called earlier, almost cringeworthy fashion. And that's not because Mm. he didn't get it, but that was intentional. He knew how Trump functioned and he saw no shame in pressing the right buttons. And last, I think having a former prime minister in that role just allowed him to view his peers as peers. Mm. You know, he could pick up the phone and call heads of state of government, a government in the European capitals or speak to Trump very regularly in a way that perhaps senior diplomats or former ministers could not. And you know, Stoltenberg is only the second Secretary General to be a former head of state. Uh, his predecessor, Anders Fogh Rasmussen, was too. He was a head of state of, of, of Denmark. But I think that's really a crucial takeaway here from, from this episode, that it matters what political status the Secretary General has, whether he or she is a political heavyweight mm. or not so. Absolutely. And 
Did you get a sense as well? I mean, obviously, we've spoken a lot about his actions very much facing the US. But did you get a sense of how it was received by other member states? Did he get a lot of pushback for what he was doing internally? Or did people generally kind of understand the predicament that NATO was in at the time? I think in most capitals, uh, there was empathy for the position that he was in and the position that NATO was in. And Mm. in general, he received a lot of support from the capitals. But of course, there were some allies that were less happy with his focus on defence spending, for example, as the primary assessment of how good an ally was. You <laughs> yeah. know, in Germany, for example, which is a country that famously underspends, you know, foreign ministers, defence ministers and, and the chancellor kept trying to talk about other things as metrics of, of being a good ally, uh, development spending, mm, actual mm. contributions to the missions and so on. And they obviously did not like Stoltenberg only talking about defence spending. But at the end of the day, I think most heads of state, most allies understood what Stoltenberg was doing. And Stoltenberg, I think, and, and now I'm, I'm speculating, but I'm, I'm fairly sure that in his private meetings, he told them what the strategy was. They were broadly on board with what he was doing. Take me on then. I mean, you mentioned uh, a couple of times now this this summit that took place in 2018. Mm. For those of us who maybe don't remember it in as clear terms as you do, could you maybe take us back and tell us the story of this chapter in this <laughs> in this tale? Why was 2018 such a pivotal moment, and what happened? Yeah, so this was the the summer of 2018 was perhaps peak America first Trumpism. Mm. So Trump arrived in Brussels in July 2018 after in June he had refused to sign the G7 summit communique, which to my mind has never happened before. Mm. And he arrives in Brussels before he is due to fly to Helsinki to meet with Vladimir Putin. And this was during the time when when the Russia question was looming very large in Washington about corruption, election interference Mm. and so on. And so that was the context within which the summit happened. And there was a distinct fear among US officials in particular that Trump wouldn't even attend the summit, that he would just fly straight to Helsinki. And imagine the images that that would have created. Trump Mm. skips a NATO summit in order to meet his pal Vladimir Putin. (laughs) So in the end, Trump does show up, but he does escalate. So it's a two-day it's a two-day summit, and on the first day, listeners might remember the images of him sitting right next to Chancellor Merkel over a breakfast, mm. and they're surrounded by journalists, and you know, he's asked a question, and he goes on on a massive personal attack with Merkel sitting right next to him, and she's in her sort of sober, steadfast way, just watches on and and doesn't show any reaction. Good on her. But it was one of those moments that really encapsulated Donald Trump, the danger that he was reflecting for, for, for NATO, for transatlantic relations as such. And so that was on the first day. And the second day, he arrives late for a meeting that is supposedly on, on Georgia and Ukraine, had nothing to do with issues that he was voicing. And he, he arrives late and then he hijacks the meeting. When he gets to speak, he goes on on a, on a big rant about defense spending. He mm. accuses other allies, he berates them, and then he threatens, uh, and I quote, that the US would go its own way. And it was really is at, at this point that the danger to NATO is the most tangible during his presidency. Because it is at this point that US officials, and that, that's what I found in my interviews, were instructed to consult with lawyers of how one would leave the North Atlantic Treaty. Mm. And there was also talk about that Defense Secretary Mattis would resign that day okay. and wouldn't want to share a stage with Donald Trump. So the fear of withdrawal was really tangible. And what Stoltenberg did then was using the bureaucratic means at his disposal as the chair of the North Atlantic Council is he calls off the meeting 
Uh, he calls for a break. He collects himself, consults with some of the key allies like Chancellor Merkel, and then calls a crisis meeting on defense spending. So what he essentially does, he gives the floor to Donald Trump. You know, he puts him front and center uh, of the stage and allows him to say and rant whatever he wants to. And that turns the fortune around because all of a sudden it's all about Trump mm. and about mm. Trump seizing the moment and <laughs> Trump telling off fellow ally leaders. And at the press conference after that meeting, he again takes all the credit, you know, not only about defense spending, but about all sorts of other decisions that were taken at the summit. And so what could have been an absolute catastrophe that could have culminated in a public announcement of withdrawal, actually, Trump walks away with a sense of victory. And you know, this is, I think this is the most perilous moment, but this is also a bit of a turning moment, mm, turning point mm. for Trump's position on NATO. Yeah. So, so could you tell us a bit about this sort of remaining couple of years of, of Trump's tenure in, in the White House and, and how they related to NATO thereafter, I suppose. So after he's given this platform, he's been given those sort of headlines, the sense of agency, that time in the sun. Is it a question of some of these issues sort of being resolved in his mind, even if in tangible, realistic terms, you know, debates on burden sharing persist and <laughs> all of these other issues around defence spending are far from resolved in, in the capitals of Europe? No, of course, none of them, none of these discussions are concluded. In the autumn of 2018, um, Trump does calm down. There, there are fewer scandals on NATO, at least. But there is, so I think the date that every one at NATO was very concerned about is uh, February 2019, which is the date for the next State of the Union speech. Right. And I think from what I can reconstruct in my research, it is somewhere in between the summit of 2018 in July and the State of the Union speech in February that Trump changes position. And there are some indications that had, again, a lot to do with what Stoltenberg does a week or two weeks prior to the State of the Union speech and me going on Fox News. This is really when Stoltenberg ups his public communications and comes up with his new mantra. Hmm. Now that Trump's been in office for two years, he has gotten $100 billion out of the European coffers. That's essentially what nice he says. Nice headline. It's a brilliant <laughs> headline, and it's it, it's sufficiently simplistic for, yeah. for Donald Trump to grasp it. And so... As I, as I said before, it's unprecedented for a secretary general of any any international organization to go on a partisan channel like Fox News. But what Stoltenberg does and what Trump does, he immediately retreats on, on Twitter. Re, he retreats the intervention by Stoltenberg where he praises him for, for the $100 billion. Mm. And then he uses that figure in the State of the Union speech. And mm -hmm. in that speech, he also says, now at last, NATO allies are paying up. They are paying up $100 billion, and that is because of me, hmm. something along these lines. And that really is the turning point, because from then onwards, I mean, Trump, of course, remains critical of certain aspects, but he doesn't go off the rails anymore. And I think what Stoltenberg really managed to convey to him is that it is now time to take actually ownership of the success rather than being so critical. Hmm. And from then onwards, it's all about, look at me, I changed NATO. You know, I have managed to reform NATO. Now everyone is paying up, and that is because of me. And it's a success story that he makes his own, and and hence his rhetoric becomes much more positive. Clever spin, but okay. So, just I'm coming towards the end now. But one question I wanted to ask you then is, is sort of the implications going forward for the Biden administration, but also for future Secretary Generals. What really are the the lessons from this episode? Because obviously, I mean, as we've spoken about before. 
a lot of the questions around defence spending, you know, the incentives for European states to keep defence spending quite low remain. But at the same time, the United States kind of centrality to the alliance and its absolute like critical nature of its involvement means that a lot of the dynamics that we're talking about here, if you take Trump out of it, a lot of the dynamics remain. So I suppose there is potential for future contestation and uh, along the same lines. And I suppose my question really is, could you also see the way that Stoltenberg dealt with this episode as a potentially a bit of a tricky precedent? Because basically what he's done is it's almost like you could say the way to get stuff done in NATO is to walk into the room as the United States and say, I'm out. I'm leaving, throw a massive kind of tantrum, <laughs> I guess. And then you basically get some some approximation of what you want. You know, is that a tricky a tricky message for potential future US presidents to, to learn from this? I mean, there are a lot of things in, in, in that question. I think on, on the very final point on whether that is a good negotiation strategy, what I was struck by that actually, you know, defense spending did increase substantially, but nowhere near to the extent that Trump demanded. So right. in yeah. some ways, the theatrics perhaps didn't work as much as Trump himself and many other commentators thought. But I think there are two broad messages or two broad takeaways from this episode. And the first is that NATO did get lucky. It was not predetermined that NATO would survive that. There were so many moments when it was contingent. And it's entirely plausible that with a different secretary general or perhaps with a president who is a little more strategic and a little more self-disciplined about what he wants to achieve, the outcome for NATO looks very different. Mm. And I think that is a sentiment that is shared to many European capitals. It didn't happen, but it could have, and hence it could happen again. And I think that's a sense that is reinforced if you look at American politics at the moment. You know, Trump is still agitating. There are other Trumpist candidates in the Republican Party. NATO doesn't seem to be above partisan politics in the US anymore. There was this very telling example of the US NATO ambassador, Julie Smith, being held up by Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz for months and months mm. on end at mm. a time when there were quite significant challenges for NATO for, for, for essentially partisan reasons. And so Europeans look at that and think, well, perhaps Joe Biden, regardless of what he says and does, is just an interim president. You know, what comes after him? And mm. so the specter of Trump, I think, or Trumpism, yeah. looms fairly large over NATO. And of course, that then begs quite su a substantial question for the Europeans, you know, how they want to guarantee their security going forward. The second takeaway, I think, and, and we've discussed this a little already, is that the Secretary General of NATO, and to some extent, Secretary Generals of other international organizations too, can play quite a significant role when, the, when NATO is in crisis. Mm. And we are currently in a phase when policymakers are discussing the successor of Jens Stoltenberg because his mandate runs out in the September of, in September of 2022. And so I think this episode should provide some guiding criteria, like we mentioned before, you know, senior political seniority, certain personal skills, certain diplomatic background to guide the process of selecting the next Secretary General. Because after all, there might be needed again to avert another crisis in the future, which is entirely plausible. Yeah. I was also going to ask you what we've seen so far from the Biden administration as well, because I, obviously, yeah, I take your point on the, the partisan nature of this. And I don't think anyone who's seriously watching these things would, would claim that the Biden administration is anti-NATO or, you know, their commitment to multilateral organisations compared to the Trump administration is uh, worlds apart. But 
Do you think also with the shift that Biden has announced towards, you know, much more focus on China, much more focus on the Indo-Pacific region, is that in a different way, a kind of existential challenge to NATO? Is it something that the that Stoltenberg's successor is going to have to sort of have on top of their agenda? Or does it actually create a bit a bit of a vacuum into which the Secretary General becomes even more important because US leadership maybe is not going to, their priorities are not going to be on Europe and its neighbourhood in terms of security? Yeah, that is perhaps the most important structural trend that will affect NATO. I mean, despite Joe Biden's very lofty rhetoric. I mean, he called, uh, you know, he said the transatlantic alliance is back. Mm. Article 5 is a sacred commitment. He really rhetorically committed the US back to to NATO and to to alliances and, and, and to the transatlantic relationship as such. But we already saw during the Afghanistan withdrawal, where many allies complained about a lack of consultation, uh, and also the AUKUS deal, which sidelined the French, yeah. that perhaps his, his rhetoric doesn't really match his policies, his <laughs> actions. There were many in Europe who complained that, to some degree, this is just continued US unilateralism. And I think what these two episodes are emblematic of is that, uh, as, as you rightly said, US priorities are shifting towards the Indo-Pacific, and I think that's unequivocal. And that begs massive questions for NATO. You know, how does NATO keep the US in? Mm. What does NATO do about China? Does it need to focus on China in order to remain relevant for the US US administration? Because that is a that is something Biden has been pushing already in his first few months. In the summer, in June 2021, the, the first summit that Biden attended, the NATO allies did agree in the declaration that NATO would have to address the military implications of China's rise. But the details are very thin and there is no agreement among the allies whether or to what extent, if at all, NATO should be uh, addressing China. Because China is not a traditional security threat like Russia or the Soviet Union was for Europe. It's much more multifaceted. It's much mm. more complex. And, and while some of its actions have direct implications in Europe, many others are not specific to Europe. And, and so those are, those are massive intellectual questions that, that NATO has to face. And I would actually recommend to, to watch the space because there are processes underway that try to offer some of the answers. Jens Stoltenberg launched the so-called 2030 Agenda yeah. um, with the aim of, among other things, agreeing on a new strategic concept in, in the summer of 2022 in order to position NATO for the next decade. And he will, or the, the concept inevitably will have to clarify NATO's position on China, but also on other things. What is the division of labor between NATO and the European Union? What does NATO do about instability in the MENA region that many of the southern allies are particularly concerned about? What does climate change mean for NATO? Does it mean anything for NATO or, or should NATO you know, stick to its core tasks? These are yeah. all really big questions mm -hmm. that are currently being negotiated and that couldn't be negotiated during the Trump presidency because there it was just survival mode. And now you know, there's a backlog of significant questions that the NATO allies and a sec the next Secretary General will have to address. Interesting time for the Secretary General to be moving on as well. <laughs> okay, well, Leonard Shooter, thank you so much for joining me and, and uh, heartily recommend reading your article. It's available on the International Affairs website. Thank you, Ben. It was great. All right, so that's it for this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed listening to this. Thank you very much for sticking with it all the way to the end if you're still here. 
And also for listening to all of our other content that we've put out on the feed this year. It's been a a pretty busy year for the Undercurrents team. We've had a lot of great new co-hosts come in, bringing their own ideas on what we should be covering. We've had a whole range of new colleagues as well at Chatham House join the Institute and bring their expertise to bear on some of the global challenges that we talk about. We'll be back in a few weeks probably towards the end of January to start off season five. If you ever have any topics that you think we should cover, you'd like to hear more about, please do email me. I'm reachable at bhorton at chathamhouse.org. Always happy to hear from from listeners because basically we're just trying to provide content that, that you're going to enjoy and that you're going to find useful. If you liked what you've heard this year, it would be amazing if you could leave us a review on whichever podcast app you're using and make sure that you subscribe to this podcast because it really helps with discoverability for other listeners. And also just tell your friends because word of mouth is one of the best ways we've found to promote undercurrents so far. Finally, I just want to say thank you to a few people before we head off for the holidays. First of all, I want to say thank you to my co-hosts, Amrit Swali, Mariana Vieira. Earlier in the year, Lara Holman, who is doing great in her new job, by the way, for their continued sort of great ideas, great contributions to the podcast. It's been wonderful to work with them on this over the past year. It's been great to work with the research programs at Chatham House for some of the mini series that you'll have heard on the feed this year. We've covered Korea, we've covered peace building, and most recently last week we covered the latest in transatlantic cooperation around regulating tech companies, which is really worth listening to. And last but not least, we want to say thank you, of course, to Jamie Reed, our editor, our sound guru, the person that makes this sound way better than it does when the raw audio gets recorded. Jamie's had a bit of a challenge this year, I think it would be fair to say, because we've been recording in some difficult situations. We've recorded at COP26 in Glasgow. We've recorded from various people's homes. We've been using Zoom a lot of the time to do audio recordings, which if you ask any sound editor, they will tell you is an absolutely awful idea. <laughs> so apologies for that and thank you so much Jamie for all the work that you do to make this podcast sound great that's all from me I guess I will just finish by saying have a wonderful holiday season whatever you're doing hope you're with family or friends and that you stay safe as COVID 2.0 begins to rear its head thank you very much for listening <laughs>